This is Kevin Hirtas from MTN Guiding, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Looking back over the last year, there's times I believed I was never going to go into the mountains again. There was times I believed, honestly, that no one should ski, that it is not worth the risk, and that maybe it should be my job to convince people not to. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your Canadian correspondent, Wes Gregg. I'm excited to be contributing to every third Thursday of the podcast. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome to another episode. Things have wound down for me here in central BC. It's just too muddy on the logging roads for me to keep pushing into the mountains. I just finished my last course for the ski season and have now switched into full-on mountain biking canoe world. This week, I'm sharing a conversation I had with self-proclaimed ski bum, Kevin Hirtas. I had this conversation back in January, right after I completed my CAA Level 1 operations. Some of you may recognize Kevin from Cody Townsend's 50 Project, where they ski the Eimer Couloir. If you haven't, go to YouTube, check it out. We'll also have a link in the show notes. What you may not know is that after that, Kevin was involved in an avalanche in January of 2020 that forever changed his life. Kevin was introduced to me by my previous guest, Kim Vanette. She had pointed me towards an article he had written called The Aftermath of a Mountain Tragedy. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Well, I don't want to give too much away about our conversation, so let's just get to it. Please enjoy my conversation with Kevin Hirtas. Well, how, yeah. how are you doing there? How's the knee? What's 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 shaking? Well, you know, not too bad actually. Today was uh, I got out for a little ski tour, just going up like a, a trail, almost a cross country ski, really, but on big fat skis for no reason. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I just went up the trail, see how my leg would feel, and then uh, uh, cruise back down. It felt great. It was a really nice blue sky day here, and nice and warm. So it's just great to be outside. So. Yeah. So yeah. So maybe what we'll do here is, uh, you know, we'll we'll get started here, Kevin. And why don't you, you know, say who you are and uh, uh, what your current role is, like what it is that you're currently doing in the ski industry. Sure. Thanks. I'm Kevin Hirtas and uh, living in Banff, Alberta, where I uh, am a ski guide. I run MTN Guiding, and um, yeah, this year I'm not guiding very much, but uh, that's definitely my full-time gig so i guess i'm more of an office guy right now hey i'm yeah, yeah the for, booking agent maybe right on right on well sometimes you got to take those breaks right and have a little bit of a sit down especially when you're recouping why don't you give us a little bit of details on what's going on with your knee there i know that you just are you're recovering from knee surgery but um maybe we'll share part of that right now and then uh, and then we'll yeah. move on yeah totally I, I, it was a pretty minor knee surgery actually but yeah end of december there um i had just a scope and some old hardware from uh previous surgery taken out a little bit of a cleanup mission while they're in there so um i'm back skiing now a month later just just went for like a, the most casual of ski tours ever today and but it's feeling good and and shouldn't take too long to get back my my knee 
problems go so far back, I'm kind of used to these little hiccups <laughs> along the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I can empathize with some of that for sure. So let's let's maybe go back, way back into your history here and where you grew up and how you you know got started skiing. Where did you first put a pair of skis on and and that and that progression? Yeah, you, you said way back, which totally alludes to my age, but uh, <laughs> I'll take it. I grew up in the in the prairies, actually uh, Red Deer, just north of Calgary, and so definitely prairies. But we had a little ski hill there called Canyon. It's like 500 vertical feet on the on a riverbank, and uh, grew up skiing and fell in love with it pretty early, like uh, age six, and started racing and raced until I blew my first knee and uh then kind of fell in love with that whole free ski scene I, I don't I, I think you're younger than me Wes but there was a time when Greg Stump was making all these amazing free ski movies like Blizzard of Oz and oh, yeah. License to Thrill and I was just I, I bought in fully I love that stuff and so that was kind of my passion as a teen and managed to go down to Lake Tahoe actually to finish uh, my degree just like a business degree and uh, but I, I went there for the free ski. I mean, Squaw Valley was kind of the epicenter of everything back then. Yeah. Totally. For that, you know, like Shane McConkey and Scott Gaffney were making movies like Walls of Freedom and all that. Anyway, I was just, it was so cool as a young guy to be just near that sort of uh, energy. And uh, I managed to intern at a ski magazine there too. And that's sort of called Boards in Motion. It was not long lived, unfortunately, but uh, gave me an insight into that whole sort of pro ski world and I was pretty infatuated with it as a, as a young young man. So, uh, yeah, moved, moved back to the Rockies, though, and uh, that was sort of always my plan was to come back to Canada and just, you know, the Rockies were pretty close to where I grew up and landed here in, like, 99. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the goal then was to be a ski mountaineer and ski all the big lines that Doug Ward and other people had put up around here. That was sort of the dream. Oh, cool. 99 was my first year back and there was a, a free ski contest. This was like right around when McConkie was sort of pushing the IFSA, you called it the, and the, and like the big mountain competitions. Right. And, uh, yeah, one of them came to sunshine village my first year skiing there. And, um, yeah, I, I managed to win it. And, you know, from there I went, it was like in a one year span, I, I became the sponsored skier I wanted to be. And that, that was pretty cool. That is pretty I mean, cool. Yeah, I say sponsored skier, like you know, definitely B team. But uh, <laughs> I did I did that for a good decade, and and uh, you know, some years managed to make enough money to put food on the table, and nice. so, and then as I as I you know sort of phased out of that, I got in working at Sunshine Village on the snow safety team, and and got into the avalanche control work and and forecasting and all that stuff, and and that sort of led me into ski guiding. Oh, cool. So, how long? Like, what was the transition between your professional career as a free skier and then mm -hmm. into working at Sunshine and getting on into the Avalanche Safety Program? Uh, there's sort of a theme here, I guess, but uh, I blew my knee. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at that point, I was kind of phasing out of, uh, yeah, I mean, you have to use air quotes when you call me a professional skier. <laughs> I, I, I was getting free gear and a bit of money here and there, but not, you know. And, and, and we had a daughter at the same time, you know, it was right. definitely it was time to get a job and uh sunshine was nice enough i'd been skiing there for a long time they were nice enough to let me on to patrol first off pretty quickly though it was like even that year was throwing bombs and and getting involved in in that side of things uh sunshine 
they have a lot of steep train that uh, you need to be pretty good movement skills, I guess you'd say, like a pretty good skier to right. to get through. And uh, so, you know, you get those control routes if if you're able to ski like that, kind of, I guess. Yeah, and then things, some things changed up at Sunshine. It was definitely time for me to to move on. So that's when I, you know, dropped into guiding full time and did a year of heli skiing at CMH, and then uh, went through the ski guides exam again, and uh, yeah, got started with that. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. So yeah. like the whole time you were kind of working in in forecasting and control at Sunshine, you were working through the guide stream at the same time as that in fits in fits and starts yeah I, I i struggled to get into the acmg to start with um you know i'd spent 10 years going around skiing like a you know ski bomb and uh and they didn't necessarily see the benefit from that so it was pretty easy the avalanche canada or sorry the canadian avalanche association on the other hand was uh willing to see that as a sort of valuable experience so i was able to work through the caa courses quite quickly compared yeah um, right on so yeah yeah so i got my apprentice ski guide at some point but then still went back and worked full-time at at um at sunshine i mean we'd had our daughter at the same time too and and being away working stints away was not as desirable as it had been when i started down that path now you finished up your guide exam so you you got your your acmg guide at that point did you is that when you started uh, your own guiding service or did you continue to work it is actually and uh yeah it's it wasn't it's not ideal right i mean uh really the ideal is to become a full ski guide work with a bunch of other people that can you know be mentors or, or at least be there to sort of calibrate with and um working on your own here in the rockies is pretty isolating there's a lot of days i could go you know, up to two weeks maybe without even talking to another guide about what's going on in the area, what they're doing. So, uh, you know, yeah, you're just not getting that feedback from others. So it's, it's certainly not the way you would draw up your career starting. Um, on the flip side, I, I had, you know, I have skied in in these specific mountains for 20 years now and I, and I, I I thought I could pull it off anyhow, let's say. And, Hmm. and it was, it was pretty much the only way it was going to work. I'd spent the year before heli skiing. So two weeks on one week off. And, uh, that was, you know, a non-starter from a family perspective that that wasn't going to work. So, um, so I tried, tried to book as many trips as I could with other guides, like specifically I'd get clients, book a hut trip and bring another guide who was way more experienced than me, pay him way more than I'm paying myself to, to try and get those weeks. And, uh, yeah, and you know, try and take staff training where I could with other operations too to do what I could. But yeah, is so slightly different and maybe not the most advisable career path there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, it's funny because actually one of the listener questions that got submitted is kind of a little bit along those lines about you know being able to find a mentor. And you, would, I, you know, I kind of assumed, oh, Canmore, there's probably tons of ACMG guides there, tons of different people that you can tie in with. But I guess the area is so big. Is that is that kind of the issue that it's tough to? Well, you kind know of what coordinate? it is. It's it's not that it's that there's a ton of guides here, but they all work away. Right. You know, uh, CMH, I think employs what, like a, is 150. It's over a hundred guides in here. I don't know how many, uh, but you know, a lot of them live here, but they work at lodges, you know, from the caribous to the Kootenays. Right. And, uh, so a lot of guides don't work here in the winter. 
and they go on hot trips they go on other trips so um yeah and, and you know what part of it too is just being a young uh I, i'm not young <laughs> new guy uh yeah maybe you're a little bit shy too you know i probably could have done a better job at reaching out to a couple of those companies in town that were working but you know you feel a little awkward about maybe being competition i i know that's not a thing now that i've been doing it a while but at the time maybe i was a little bit more shy and removed than i should have been right can you just give us a bit of a rundown so uh, for those that don't know uh kevin and uh megan j ward wrote an article called the, the aftermath of a mountain tragedy um we'll put the link down in the show notes um, but if you can get a, a breakdown of, of that article, so which would include uh, the events leading up to the to um, what happened, what happened, and then the basis of the article. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the yeah, I might as well cut right to it because it kind of frames everything. But just over a year ago, um, skiing nearby here on Mount Hector, um, Adam Campbell. Uh, a fairly well-known athlete from uh, Canmore there, and and I planned a ski day, and, and his wife Laura came along too, and uh, uh, so it was a recreational day, but uh, you know, and, and avalanche conditions were considerable that day, and and we had sort of hoped to to go out and you know ski something rad or have some fun, and but we had checked down a few times on the drive, like no, that's not going to happen. We're just let's just go out for a mellow day and get to get to know each other a bit, I think really. And, and, um, yeah, unfortunately that, that day didn't go as, as planned. Um, ski a couple runs and, uh, third run, we, uh, sort of a longer run. We we're taken back towards the car and sorry, a tree line feature, definitely a rocky snowpack, you know, the full continental thick to thin kind of area and wind loaded and, Laura skied first this time and uh, was down at the bottom. Well, maybe like halfway down. I uh, dropped in second and, you know, when I was about halfway down, I could see her standing down on the slope. Not, yeah, you know, not exactly sure why she was standing there, but she was, we think, taking some pictures, you know, and just really enjoying the run. It, it had been a beautiful run and beautiful day. And, uh, yeah, Adam was just sort of dropping in at the top and an avalanche happened and uh, came down. I could just tell by the way, you know, I kind of looked up and could could see Laura there and okay, went back to skiing and she's still a long ways away and looked down again and she's sort of stepping out of the way and, and I realized, or I think, yeah, that, that's probably a good idea, you know, you know, stick to good habits, get out of the path and and then I realized another turn or two later that no, she's like quite frantically moving out of the way. And that's when I realized what was likely behind me and um, took a hard right. And as I did, you could feel the the powder cloud kind of behind me on the back of my neck even and uh, realized what was happening and just honestly launched straight into a tree, like just aired right into a tree and hugged it and... Uh, wasn't hit by the avalanche where I was. Um, but, you know, obviously shaking up, I get up and looking around, kind of cursing myself because I dropped the pole and thought I was just being dramatic and overreacting. And um, 
I yell for Laura a couple times that she can't hear me. I'm like, oh, okay, grab my pole and go meet up with her down. I was sure she'd made it to the trees on the side of the run. And, uh, yeah, I look up and, that, and I see Adam skiing towards me. And, and again, you could just tell by his body language what was going on and realize that he was frantic and realized even from 100 meters away, somehow knew what he had just seen. And uh, what he had seen was the size two, two and a half avalanche um, come down and uh, take his wife, Laura, down into uh, a pretty vicious train trap below us, a, a creek. And uh, so started the started the search. Adam, of course, is like, um, you know, really concerned. And uh, transceiver search, realized at that point it was, it was a really deep burial. It was a tricky transceiver search because of the lay of the land, but got to the pinpoint pretty quick. But the pinpoint was never, never four meters, definitely never anything under that. Um, so we, I probed briefly, realized it was a deep burial. And the probe was not long enough. Three-meter probe was not long enough. And uh, so then we just started digging, dug a meter down, big area, meter down, and uh, pinpoint again. Got a probe strike at that point at about pretty much the full probe, so you know three meters. Wow. And uh, yeah, and then we spent the next forty-five minutes after that still probably digging to get to her. When we uh, did get to her, it was not not like that. Oh, hey, we have arrived. We can pull her out. It's you know the yeah. It took a lot of effort, even after she was uh, partially uncovered, to uh, fully get her uncovered and get her out of the cave we had created. And uh, yeah, and I suppose that, that I mean the whole way you were coming to the realization of what was actually going to happen here, and and then uh, we had called Parks on our inreach, and luckily they were able to uh, to get there maybe twenty minutes after we had Laura out. Oh, so that's wow. what maybe an hour and twenty hour thirty after the avalanche, and. Uh, so we didn't didn't do CPR for long or uh, anything like that, and they showed up and long lined her out, and then long lined us out, and yeah, that's when we could finally drop our guard, I guess, and just kind of break down and yeah, 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 no doubt. Um, now, um, of course, I can only imagine what goes through your mind after that how did you first um start dealing with with the events that had happened that day right yeah i mean you'd asked me about the article which which we wrote later about how to you know what people go through in these situations and stuff and uh, i don't know in the article i wrote maybe maybe it's a good way to start i don't know that well, an hour of digging gives you a lot of time to think, to be honest, more than you want. <laughs> and, um, you know, you have lots of time to come to the realization that your life's never going to be the same and and that that is secondary to what's going on. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I mean, so even right, right then, you knew, and when we were flying out, even you knew you were coming back to a changed world, really. And uh, I, I'm sure I, I, I didn't know what that was or or how. You know, I kind of assumed I'd never ski again and never uh, guide again and never be in the mountains again. And but I mean, I didn't. I guess. In some ways, uh, yeah, I, I didn't know the scope of what was going on, you know? Mm-hmm. My wife was at home. She had gotten an in-reach message two hours earlier that something tragic was happening, and she had no way of knowing what that meant. So she got to live for a full two hours thinking, you know, her husband wasn't coming home, and she was a single mom. And that, you know, that, that has repercussions too. And, and mm-hmm. the... Yeah, so I, th- I think maybe you're asking like, how how did we start putting things back together? And I was lucky enough, oh, she's unlucky enough, I guess, to have seen a certain amount of trauma, you know, working at the ski hill and, and being in the industry long enough. And there's been other things I just hadn't hadn't gotten help for. I'd never seen a therapist before. I'd never, uh, yeah, opened up to that sort of process and and. In hindsight, I, I knew I should have, you know, I'd seen three years later, I could trace back the effects that it had on me. And, uh, and so this time I, I, I knew immediately that, yeah, I was going to need help through this. And, mm-hmm. you know, that meant everything from, the, um, you know, the emergency sort of, uh, help at the hospital. There's always therapists there certain hours of every day that are willing to see you. And, and then, uh, you know, Alberta health services here, I'm sure BC has a similar and, and then the ACMG, you know, helped me, uh, afford a good therapist in Camor and, and, uh, just started on that process as soon as I could. Yeah. yeah. I knew better this time to do, to do that. Yeah. Right. No. And that's, that's really important. Now I think it takes a special and a strong individual to be able to come back to something that they're so passionate about. And um, because it's way easier to just say, forget it. I'm never skiing again. And I'm never going back into the mountains again. And, and uh, you know, like I just, I think no matter how long it takes, you can't take that passion away. I don't think. I I think you're right. You know, like, you know, one thing I was going to say, sir, at the start was just that, you're catching me at a like a really specific time. It's uh, I was thinking earlier. It's almost funny to go on record right now. Looking back over the last year, there's times I believed I was never going to go into the mountains again. There was times I believed honestly that no one should ski. That it is not worth the risk, and that maybe it should be my <laughs> job to convince people not to. Um, there's you know there's been a lot of so. The, any of the feelings I'm expressing right now are certainly of a moment that I'm not, not guaranteeing I'll feel the same way in three months, but, right. but I kind of think, you know, if, if for people that are going to be in the mountains and working in the avalanche industry or anything, maybe it's insightful to see what, what that journey looks like. And, and, you know, what you actually go through, like in your mind, you know, okay, I'm dealing with the avalanches. If something goes wrong, someone could die. And, uh, you know, most of us have been around long enough. have had close calls enough to sort of drive that home, at least on a practical level. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 
you know, I always believed I understood that, but, uh, I mean, may, maybe you can't until you, until it's really, really impact, like a real part of your life yeah. in a really direct way. But yeah. And I think people know instinctively that, you know, someone dying is, is incredibly traumatic in, in this sense. And, uh, but but maybe they maybe it's tough to imagine what that means for you for you and your life and, and your family and your psyche. Um on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. I and, don't know. And I think it's so it's so uh, it's hard to it's hard to remain like say things positively when it's such a traumatic event that has brought you to this stage of of being able to open up and openly talk about your feelings and your emotions that you experienced through, through this. And, and I think it's, I think that's important for all of us that recreate in the backcountry to understand as well. Uh, I, I don't know if you've kind of feel the same way is that, you know, it, it's important that we all share the feelings that we're having um, when events happen, whether they're near misses or if we're unfortunate enough to be involved in, in something like what, what you've been involved in. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, you know, I guess the point with that article was just, you, we're all making decisions, right? Like you're, you're on your level one there a while back, you're saying, and, you know, maybe you guys are moving in training, like, okay, I'm going to decide whether I think today it's worth the risk to go over here to dig our profiles. I know we're technically now last train, but I don't think it's going to slide. Okay. You, you've made a decision. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, th- I think it's, you know, until you truly know what you're risking, are, are you making the best decision you can? So, I'm, uh, yeah, maybe if anything, talking to people that have gone through really traumatic events, maybe that's what you can learn from them. You know, you can see see how gnarly it really is. And, uh, and you know, maybe that helps you weigh things later. I don't know. I was, you know, I was thinking earlier about this podcast and I've listened to it and, you know, usually you guys think is to have experts on who are, <laughs> you know, able to, to pass on some wisdom and some educate, you know, educate people from, from like usually a higher place in, in their career path or their experience level and all that. And <laughs> this episode is not that this episode is, uh, you know, someone who's been, yeah, yeah. knocked down and is, uh, you know, can give you some insight into what that is maybe. And I think it's, uh, you know, to demystify what may get portrayed in social media. And I think that the conversation that you and I are having is, is an opportunity to do that. Everything that people see are these glorious shots. And there was a, there's a thing that Barry Blanchard said in your article, like with regards to, it just seems like it's all sunshine and roses, but there's, there's a lot of gray that goes on that. Yeah. And I think Barry's, Barry's good point there is, you know, if, if we use the mountain analogy, there's a sunny side and there's a dark side and there's, you know, equal both. And Instagram is always the sunny side, isn't it? And, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and not just Instagram, like, you know, ski magazines, ski movies, all these things I've been involved with in the past. You're, you're selling a dream and that's good. People need, people need things to dream about and be happy about too. Yeah. Totally. But, uh, but we also need a certain level of honesty and, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of days that aren't beautiful banger days in the backcountry, right? Mm-hmm. And as many as good days, and and then there's you know 
there's those super highs and there are super lows and maybe it's more honest if we don't just uh hide the lows i i totally agree with you like a hundred percent my perspective is from a recreationist perspective and i've learned a lot over the last few years of starting to investigate that with regards to the mental health side of the industry and sometimes the seemingly lack of support that has been in there in the past and it, and it does have the image that it's beginning to get better that there that support is starting to build and one of the things is uh, something that you and I discussed uh, when we first had our initial introduction chat there was uh, mountainmuskox.com um do you yeah. want to just maybe give uh, myself and the listeners a little bit of background on that website and and kind of your involvement and what what that that um program is for you yeah totally i'd love to thanks thanks for bringing it up wes um so the mountain muskox is is uh, a group it's a funny name i know <laughs> the idea being that muskox you know will circle the you know and protect uh members of the herd or whatever and and uh really it's a, a peer support group for people that have had you know incidents in mountain trauma in the mountains and uh, so that's not just professional a lot of professionals in there but not just that not not just guides, not just recreationalists. There's, you know, wildlife biologists in there. There's, uh, yeah, recreational climbers. There's, yeah, and and what it is right now really is a pilot project. So honestly, we're we're not there yet. There's funding we need to to get it off the ground. And um, if you go to mountainmuskox.com, <laughs> everyone, that'd be amazing. And uh, there's a spot there to. To donate. Luckily, the Alpine Club of Canada has come on board to be um, sort of a, a partner in it with us, and uh, you know they're a full charity and everything, and so they've been able to take care of the yeah housing, the fund fundraising stuff. Because to be honest, the 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 people who started this are Barry Blanchard, who you mentioned earlier, a legendary mountain climber, and Todd Gwynn, a risk specialist and uh, full mountain guide, skier, climber. And Sarah Hwinnikin, professional ice climber and, and all-around mountain badass. And, you know, they, they kind of just sort of started coming together themselves, the, the three of them, to help each other through instance in their lives and and uh, have just realized how valuable that is to others. And I'm really thankful they were there for me and, and have been there for me. And, and, uh, and the goal is just to create i mean i guess i should say like it's it's with professionals so there are professional therapists facilitating uh you know helping everyone through it and the idea being that then we'd be able to recreate that sort of uh program in in other mountain towns revelstoke squamish all these other places the demand is shocking <laughs> we put up the website you're talking about and mm -hmm. uh you know with just some information and sort of uh you know asking people to help us reach the funding goal so we can we can get started, but man, what we got was a whole lot of emails from people wanting to be involved, you know, and some, some pretty rough stories and people that, that really did need help. And, um, yeah, so it, it'll be really rewarding when we get it going and, uh, can be there. I mean, if you're a soldier, a firefighter, you know, any, any of these sort of industries have these programs, but, uh, you know, the mountain community doesn't and the mountain communities, a lot of, real individuals who have, you know, um, you know, maybe tend to isolate when things go wrong because they are so individualistic. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You know, it, it's, I find mental health is one of those things that ends up for a lot of people, um, a difficult thing to face and a difficult thing to accept. What are, aside from the obvious of, of just going to get help, um, which is quite often a lot easier said than done for a lot of people. Um, would you have any suggestions or any helpful places for individuals who may be scared or too shy or um, embarrassed to go r- reach out for, for help? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I'm only a year into this, this journey myself on it. Well, in some ways. And, and I'm certainly no expert, but I, I've definitely seen enough and understand enough now that, uh, that even though that, that is something everyone says, obviously goes to get help. And then we move the conversation along. I, I think we need to linger there. Like that, that is in a lot of ways, the magic sauce, like that is it, it like you say, it's such an easy thing to do, but it's also so hard for most people to do. And I think, if anything, if we can be of service in any way, it's just to normalize that. And I was saying, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. If you're, um, you know, going to see a trainer, great. You're trying to get fit. You're going to see a business coach, great. You're trying to improve your profits, whatever. Uh, you go see a doctor, well, it's a little grayer here. Now we, you know, you must be injured. Something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Going to see, a, you know, a mental health expert okay what's wrong with you you know there, there's that so i and i think that's part of what makes us shy away from it at first you know the the mind doesn't like to look at itself and say something's wrong <laughs> you have to you have to hit pretty low for that yeah but I, I think we can reframe it you know it's uh what percentage of avalanche work is comes down to decision making like a, a good chunk of it that's <laughs> that's the important stuff and i really don't think anyone we all have issues we all have things that blind us to good decision making and and dealing with those issues makes you a better decision maker makes you you know makes you more present for family makes you have more fun with your friends there's there's a million upsides to it and if you can focus on those then then really it's just a a training component to be the person you want to be as opposed to uh a bomb on top of you know everything that's going wrong yeah i i don't know maybe yeah not to be on a soapbox but i just think we could we could reframe it as like i don't know human performance optimization and people will start (laughs) going i I probably would have gone sooner if if someone had framed it for me that way yeah you know i'd been thinking too there's as a as a case study like there was a time i was telling you i was working at sunshine when i went through the ski guide program right yeah that's right and um I, I had to take the full ski guide twice because I failed it the first time. And the reason was because I wasn't dealing with with issues. And in, in the month leading up to it, I'd been working at Sunshine and we'd had three red calls. So like uh, life-threatening, life-ending calls in a row and uh, in that month. And then two other red patients that that didn't die. And, you know, these were some intense calls. I was, you know from real highs and real lows, like it was a, it was a really rugged month. And during that, we were in a big avalanche cycle and we opened up a lot of terrain and we had an inbounds avalanche, which is 
you know, horrible in open train. And, uh, yeah, I was just, I was fried. My confidence was so low. I had, you know, before that month I had never done CPR and I did it like three times that month. And, uh, and then went on my guys exam was just super low confidence and, and also like a real, what would you say? Like guttural tangible idea of what the implications of things going wrong could be. And, and I was a mess on that exam. Like I wasn't even close to passing, oh, you wow. know, I was, uh, I was too conservative one day and then, and then trying to overcompensate and pendulum in the other way the next day and, and just back and forth. And, and, uh, you know, at the time I, I didn't, yeah, I, I wasn't, if I had gotten help, well, I, I'm not sure it could have helped me that quick anyhow, but in hindsight, like it's really obvious to me that I don't want to be guiding, um, people in that mindset and that's why i'm you know not doing it right now it's not uh it's not a safe place to be yeah and uh but i think a lot of people in our industry do end up there whether they know it or not yeah now i mean you've kind of been alluding to this throughout the entire conversation you're in a pretty fluid state right now from what i can tell and from our conversation with regards to um your involvement in the mountains as a as a skier um how is that affecting how you approach the mountains now oh yeah uh i, I don't know i'm almost embarrassed to say because it's it's um not gonna it, it doesn't make much sense when you look at it on paper i didn't ski after the accident so you know it was january 10th last year and uh didn't go on skis again until and, and didn't want to like i you know i wanted to move out of the mountains we were moving to the city or something and mm-hmm. find a whole different career path and i mean it was really lucky in in some ways that covid happened and the world shut down because all of a sudden the options became none and we'd had to just sit and reflect and spend a few months calming the hell down right. and uh, and that really served us well because yeah i mean uh, i was reaching for anything there for a while and um and so then comes come fall i was thinking ah i don't know like maybe i do want to ski or maybe that's just because i've always skied i don't know any other way to be right mm-hmm. and and so i was sort of beating myself over even wanting to ski and uh but decided i'd go out might as well try it once and uh <laughs> caught out with a friend and she's this badass ski mountaineer and so our my first day back on skis was cobra Kulwar on mount temple which is you know it's not the gnarliest thing in the world but for your first turns of the year it's pretty legit and then for first turns in a year like that it was but it was great and i loved it and <laughs> Then I didn't ski again for a while because I was just like, what are you doing? Right. And uh, then I sort of eased back into it with the plan of going guiding at the start of December on these free ride camps we always love to do, that, which I was saying I did with some friends. And, and mm-hmm. the goal there just being that it's good friends in a low ratio guiding scenario uh, that I could just lean on. And it was going to be the best opportunity I would ever get to see if guiding fit anymore. And, and uh, so I went up there and it was honestly it was a bit too much like it was a, yeah it was a bit too much overwhelming yeah and, uh, but that was okay like it was, that was the spot to find that out 
And yeah. so I backed off, just going to do a few little intro to ski touring days this winter for guiding, run some AST courses for others to do the work. And, you know, I'm, I'm not doing avalanche courses right now. And, uh, but like, I want to ski again. It's kind of, it's almost scaring me that I, I'm, yeah, I, I want to ski and, uh, I want to ski hard, but I also more never want to ski mellow, <laughs> like 10 degree pow kind of sounds fun right now. And, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know, I guess, I guess it's all over the show and I just not entirely sure where it'll end up. So but. yeah, no, I mean, and that's, that's completely understandable. And it, it sounds like, you know, when you got to go do the camp this December, like it's so great that you were able to be around your friends that you could probably lean on a little bit when things weren't quite feeling the way they normally do. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Oh, that's great to have that kind of support, Kevin. Well, maybe we'll switch gears here a little bit as we have some listener questions. We'll get them out there here. So this one's from uh, at uh, Jay Coos. And uh, his question was uh, advice for people looking to attain guiding level knowledge. What after an AST2 and uh, how to find a mentor, which kind of li- we, we touched on a little bit at the beginning. Right. The... Well, I mean, the, the, the process, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have already looked and understand it, so just go quickly. Like, you have to get through the Canadian Avalanche Association courses, so that's your ops level one, at least, and, and then be looking at your ops level two. And and to do that, you, you kind of need some sort of work in the backcountry, right? I'm sure you're, you're dealing with this now, Wes, mm-hmm. trying to either tail guide or work at a hut or ski patrol or, or do something to get that some sort of work experience. Um that's more on the avalanche side. You, you need that. Um, and then you, you need this big resume nowadays to get in. The assistant ski guide is a super competitive program to get into these days. And I'm constantly amazed by s- friends of mine who are super strong that they can't get in, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they just need lots of ski tours in various snowpacks, in glacier terrain, leading complex tours, you know? Yeah, totally. And really, you need years is what you do. So plan on that being like a five-year process mm-hmm. of building that resume, and you'll be happier. Because if you try to do it in a year or two, you're just going to be frustrated, and you won't get there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think I think that's a big thing, especially in this day day and age of uh, the click and I get it now uh, syndrome, where you know people don't they think that you can just go and, and get it not to say that that this uh that jay coos is is that but it seems like he may be uh just kind of <laughs> seeking seeking a little bit more education after your ast2 sure i mean different different people offer different things for mm-hmm. sure and yeah honestly not to not to pump guiding in my own business but it is actually a, a way to sort of shortcut the mentorship and experience thing because Honestly, no one gets the mentorship. Everyone asks for it and talks about it. No one gets the mentorship they hope for. That's, <laughs> that's not a thing. You can't just wait around for that to happen. So, I mean, you create your friend circle. You, you get out there. You give as much as you receive, and, and you make it work. And, and when you can find time to be out with someone with more experience, you, make, you move whatever you have to to make that work. Yeah. And then, yeah, hiring a guide, like you're really just tapping into someone else's experience for the day. It's yeah. not cheap. I, I get it, but it is a way to shortcut. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Like, really, when you look at the cost of a course versus the cost of hiring a guide for a day, you know, nothing against the courses that get offered, but I feel like getting an opportunity to spend 
eight, nine hours walking around with a guide, you're going to learn yeah, a lot. Especially if you're up front and, and get, get a guide who's interested in that type of work. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, some guides are and some guides aren't. So make sure you find someone that wants to do that style of sort of uh, educational mentorship kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Okay. I got, I got another question here from at Sam Judson. And, uh, the question is, um, what's your all time favorite moment in the backcountry? Oh man, I don't know. That's a, that'd be pretty tough. Well, I, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one and it's not even, yeah, it's not to be braggadocious cause it's not necessarily <laughs> worth bragging about in a lot of ways, but me and three really, you know, good friends skied a, a, a line on Mount Clemenceau, which hadn't been skied at the time. And, and it's not that that's the greatest thing we've ever skied or that it was, you know, that we flew to the bottom of it, camped, climbed it the next day, skied it. It was amazing and it was huge and beautiful and stuff. But uh, it was that we had wanted it for so long and then got there and it was a beautiful day and, and conditions were good and you know you're halfway up it as the sun comes up and it's this stunning day looking out over all the rockies from a super high peak and it was just like a, a pretty euphoric uh climbing ski yeah. yeah and 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 just yeah the visuals from that day even uh are one of the few in my ski career where i can totally go back to it close mm. my eyes and think of it and yeah yeah. Uh, so then uh, just kind of to, to wrap up, what's one thing, you know, aside from the obvious that you would never go into the backcountry without? So the obvious being Ooh. your rescue equipment and, and uh, pack and right. stuff like that. But the one thing that you would never leave and go to the backcountry without? Huh. There's got to be something in my pack that, I, oh, uh, little down mitts, these tiny little mitts they they pop pop down into nothing you know but when you're cold in the rockies and you're you're just grumpy after a snack break or whatever you put those down mittens on and everything's okay and life is good oh nice oh that's awesome that's a good one i like that for sure now um maybe we'll get you to do a little plug of where we can find you if you want to be found online so your instagram Mm -hmm. and um uh, any websites or anything like that, maybe just give us a little plug for, for those. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, mtnguiding.com is our guiding website and be awesome. People check that out. If anyone's interested in, in some of the writing I've done skis and mountains.com is just my little, uh, little spot where I drop it all. These are articles that have been elsewhere and stuff, but, um, and that article you were, you were mentioning earlier, Wes, the, the aftermath that's on crowfootmedia.com. So, uh, you know, that, that's maybe something that's noteworthy for people on social media. It's just K here If you can spell it, if not MTN guiding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for taking the time and, and, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. You be safe and, and sounds good, man. Have yeah. Have a great there. winter. Yeah. You too. I'll, uh, I'll be listening to your episode. So yeah. yeah, right on. Take it easy, man. Cheers. Okay, thanks. Well, that was a great conversation with Kevin. As someone who has struggled with mental health for most of my adult life, these conversations hit home. I want to remind listeners that if you or someone you know is struggling, reach out. There is help out there and things can get better. But if you're having thoughts of suicide, please go to your local emergency services for help. I'll have links to Mountain Muskox 
as well as Kevin's guide services in the show notes. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or head on over to the website, theavalancheshower.com, to stay up to date on guests and offers. If you like the podcast, subscribe, rate, and drop us a review. Then maybe tell a friend, tell that friend to tell a friend. The music in the background is provided by my good friend, Chris Kaplinski. And of course, thanks to Mike T for the artwork. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.